0: You know, this is what I call the swamp's last stand. and uh, And I think that this is really the last chance for the American people to truly have an outsider uh, in Washington. And hopefully when the president wins, he'll be in a position where he'll uh, just accelerate the changes uh, that he's that he's been able to make and really uh, drain the swamp and and truly bring, you know, power in America back to the American people. Some of the more effective policymakers in American
1: history have also been the most unexpected, perhaps even the most reluctant. Such is the case with today's guest, Jared Kushner. In 2016, after working in real estate and business, Jared was presented with an assignment he had never anticipated when his father-in-law, Donald Trump, was elected president. Jared promptly divested from many of his businesses to become a senior advisor to the newly elected president. Despite a media that is eager to minimize the accomplishments of the Trump administration, Kushner has been at the forefront of some of the White House's most successful initiatives. From the First Step Act, a groundbreaking criminal justice reform bill signed into law in 2018, to the monumental new peace deals in the Middle East, Kushner and his team have been leaders in shaping the future of the country at home and abroad. Kushner, a modern Orthodox Jew, has managed to accomplish all of this while balancing a robust family life along with his wife Ivanka, who converted to Judaism in 2009. Kushner has become one of the closest advisors to the president and continues to play a major role in the current re-election campaign. Jared joined the show to share his experience with the president and to remind the American people of the administration's accomplishments that will continue given four more years in office. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Jared Kushner, or as the left likes to call you, the devil incarnate, welcome to the show. Appreciate your
0: time. (laughs) Thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you.
1: You know, I want to start by asking you some questions the media actually will not ask you because it might, number one, humanize you, and number two, point out that uh, you are not, in fact, the devil incarnate. Why don't we start with the fact that uh, you and your office have been largely involved with creating the first movements toward peace in the Middle East uh, in a full generation, Uh, which means that normally, you know, if you were a Democrat uh, or in a Democratic administration, presumably that would mean that that you were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. As it is, it must be that you are a nefarious shill of the Zionist entity. So, So, Jared... Why don't you talk a little bit about how that came about, because it's really been undercovered by the media that there's actual movement towards serious peace in the Middle East for the first time since I was a child.
0: Yeah, well, what I would say, Ben, is that there are a lot of people out there who are very positive. So I, I recognize that the media is a small subset. And and uh, obviously, I take, uh, after four years, what they say and do mostly with a grain of salt, because I do find that you know people in the country and throughout the world, they see what's going on and they get it. and so. Uh, I find that that's not the uh, standard to which we try to hold ourselves to. But, you know, talking about the Middle East, I mean, that's just a great example of uh, taking a a problem set that's been looked at by so many people in one way uh, for so long. And it's been uh, approached with uh, a very stale uh, way of thinking. And so when President Trump came in, he asked me to look at it. It wasn't something I had uh, deep familiarity with. And I obviously didn't have uh, all of the, uh, the 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 history with it that many of the people had looked at it before had. But uh, we tried to take a logical approach to uh, a problem. And, and what we did over the years is we stuck to our guns. And the closer we were getting, uh, I think, to progress, the louder uh, we were being criticized for our actions by a lot of the conventional thinkers who'd been doing it one way. And so what we were able to accomplish was break through uh, a wall that had existed for a long time uh, to create a peace agreement between Israel and the, and the United Arab Emirates, and then ultimately we got a peace agreement between Israel and Bahrain as well. And so, in Israel's previously previous 72 years, they'd had uh, two peace agreements, and then in a span of about 29 days, we had two peace agreements. And so, you know, when we started, I said to our team, I said, you know, let's look at this like there's this big wall in the Middle East, and uh, people are so intimidated by the wall that let's do our best to hit it with everything we have. And who knows, you know, maybe the wall is a concrete wall like everyone thinks, or maybe. Uh, the wall is as atrophied, or maybe it's just a paper mache wall. and And at the end of the day, if we give it everything we got, maybe we'll be able to bust through it. And uh, thanks to the unconventional approach and a lot of hard work by uh, people on my team and the president and this administration, we we're able to uh, get a great accomplishment that I think uh, will create a fundamental change in the direction of the Middle East for hopefully generations to come. Uh,
1: Jared, maybe you can talk about the sort of fundamental philosophical shift that had to happen in order for this to happen because the, the conventional foreign policy wisdom going back decades was that if the United States was too pro-Israel, to openly pro-Israel, then this would inhibit peace in the Middle East. That the only way the peace in the Middle East would ever be made was if Israel made concessions to the Palestinians and some sort of overall agreement was reached between Israel and the Palestinians. Obviously, the perspective that the Trump administration took, that your office took, was that peace could be something that was done outside in, that the Palestinian issue could be put off to the side or at least delayed for the moment uh, while other interests that aligned uh, were, were formalized. Uh, Why do you think it was that so many people ignored that for so long?
0: I I think people used a false notion of America being an honest broker, and they really put all their eggs into that basket, saying we have to show that we're impartial. But uh, America is not impartial. America's job is to look after the interests of America. And, you know, one of the things that is a fundamental underpinning of our Middle East uh, policy towards stability is the relationship with Israel, which we went to strengthen Uh, And then obviously also figuring out how after the previous administration, it did the Iran deal, uh, which probably is one of the worst transactions I've ever seen, maybe in history, uh, where basically they took the leading state sponsor of terror, they gave them access to $150 billion, they sent them a couple billion dollars in cash, uh, and they basically, the day the agreement was signed, they were chanting death to America, death to Israel. Uh, In the previous four years, America, previous eight years, had had created uh, schisms in all of their... Uh, relationships in the Middle East Uh, you know their traditional Gulf partners felt very uh, very betrayed by America same with Israel and then Isis was flourishing in the region with a caliphate the size of Ohio so we came in and said what are America's interests? And we we brought everyone together. The president's first trip was to Saudi Arabia, where he assembled the leaders of 54 Arab and Muslim countries and said, These aren't America's problems, these are your problems too. We have to deal with extremism, we have to deal with financing of terrorism, we have to get rid of ISIS, and we have to roll back Iran's aggression. And if we do this together, we can make progress. And so instead of focusing on the tactical things, which so many I would call it cottage industry, peace processors did, and they'd get stuck in these, you know, philosophical or intellectual arguments. We focused on what are we trying to achieve as a region? And then, you know, to untie the big knots, you had to untie some of the, the smaller knots, and we just kept moving forward. And I'll say the other thing the president did was that he wasn't bullied into not doing what he felt was right. You know, previous presidents, when they ran, promised they would move the embassy to Jerusalem. And President Trump, you know, before he did it, uh, everyone told him, including the intelligence agencies here in America, that if he did it, uh, the world was going to end and it was going to be, you know, unleash chaos in the Middle East. And uh, uh, the Arab countries wouldn't talk to us anymore. And it would be uh, World War Three. And, you know, President Trump took the assessment. He looked at it. But after being on the job a year, he had enough knowledge of the players in the region to say, I don't buy that. And he did it. And then what happened was, is the next morning, the sun rose and the next evening, the sun set. And all of the different things that people told him would lead to the end of the world uh, didn't happen. And so, at the end of the day, President Trump showed people that he was going to take action. He wasn't going to be bullied into uh, into not taking action. And by doing things differently, you know, he really broke up the traditional field. And then, sometimes you have to break a leg to reset it. He ended up you know, doing things that were not normally done. And that's what led to these these breakthroughs. And so, you know, we, we tried to bring people together on what their common interest was and try to take them away from being stuck in these old grievances. Because a lot of the peace process and a lot of these paradigms are riddles that were meant not to be solved. And so, you know, how do you do it? You have to change, change the parameters on what you're trying to accomplish things. Because if there was an easy to solution to the old riddle, it would have been solved, you know, a long time ago. Let's talk
1: about Middle Eastern policy more broadly for a second, because there's this sort of weird shifting goalpost thing that happens whenever people talk about Middle Eastern policy. And that is that if peace gets made uh, between particular regimes in the Middle East, then the media and members of the left immediately shift the discussion to, okay, but now we're working with regimes that violate human rights, ignoring, of course, the fact that the United States made tremendous uh, concessions to the Iranian regime, which is probably the largest human rights violator in the Middle East and maybe across the planet uh, right now. How do, you, how do you balance the necessity for pressing for human rights, particularly with regimes uh, that very often are violating human rights, but maybe doing things that are in America's interest?
0: So I find in in politics in general, again, this was a newer uh, thing for me. I was not in politics. But, you know, you have a lot of people who want to do virtue signaling. They'll go out and they'll do lecturing and they'll try to, you know, browbeat people. and And the mob likes that, right, because people want to see it. But what we found is that You know, you could be much more influential with people when you're not criticizing them publicly. It's a very, you know, fundamental premise that seems obvious, but uh, you'd be surprised by how many politicians seem to, you know, miss that very simple notion. So, you know, what President Trump has done in the region is he's not telling other countries, uh, other leaders, how to run their countries. He doesn't choose who the leaders are of these countries. We inherit. Uh, the hand that we're dealt. And he works to further America's interests by working with people. And so there are countries where we have uh, common interests and we work together to try to pursue those. And there are areas where we have disagreement and, you know, we try to have dialogue together to, to push forward on that. But what he's not doing is he's not out there uh, browbeating our allies uh, on areas where we can do things that will benefit the American people. Uh, he's out there working with with sometimes you know rough or tough uh, leaders uh, on areas where we can benefit our country and their country, and then on areas where we have disagreement, by having a warm relationship and a dialogue, you're able to try to work with them to do better. And that's also why President Trump has been one of the most successful presidents at bringing hostages home, right? He's, you know, again, a lot of these places, you could sit there and lecture these leaders on how to run their countries, uh, but then they'll basically say, you know, well, you know, we're not going to help you with issues that you have interest in. And so, uh, again, it's it's obviously a complicated balance, but you know, in politics, you very it's not really a black and white business. You know, things aren't really solved or unsolved. It's almost like the conclusion of every problem set is the beginning of a new paradigm. And so everything's always fluid. Nothing's really ever solid. And you have to accept that as the status quo and then constantly be working to optimize uh, to, you know, make the things happen that you want to make happen, uh, make things that are good better, make things that are bad less bad. And then just always try to figure out, you know, who are you working for? You're working for the American people. What are their interests? Uh, what is my job to do? And then how can I pursue that and advance those interests every day? Okay. Now, the other accomplishment
1: that, that your office inside the White House has largely been uh, credited with uh, is criminal justice reform. And uh, I was wondering if you could have sort of lay out the details there, because I've been more critical of criminal justice reform. Uh, I'm, I'm a very uh, tough on crime right winger. Uh, which means that uh, my belief is that uh, I've seen it in California, letting people out of jail early on the in the hopes that they are not going to be recidivists has has largely redounded uh, to the negative in the state of California. But what does criminal justice reform do, and what doesn't it do?
0: So uh, you're being a right wing, you know, tough on crime is is very much in line with my boss, President Trump, and he feels the same way. I mean, he's very strong on law and order and doing it now. Uh, in politics, you know, a term like criminal justice reform again, there's about a thousand shades of gray, and there's a lot of different definitions for what it it can mean. and any um any policy or any element, you know, taken to an extreme could be bad and and you know, even things that are good. And so the criminal justice reform that we put in place is not about, you know, letting uh, you know murders and rapists out of prison, like some of the opponents tried to criticize it. And it's not like what they did in New York, which was the no cash bail, which went way too far, which made the streets less safe. The whole notion of what we did was, we brought law enforcement together along with the the advocates community. And we said, what can we do to reduce crime? And what we did is we followed the models that they did in a lot of Republican states like Georgia and Texas and Kentucky, where what they did is they took the prisons. And they basically said, we have a lot of people in these prisons who have a high likelihood just per the data of going on to commit future crime. So in any business, if you know where your future customers are coming from, that's where you want to market to. And then you know as a country we have been having this philosophical debate over the last years, which is what's the purpose of our prisons? Is it to you know punish people? is it to warehouse people or is it to rehabilitate people? So it, it does cost the taxpayers a lot of money every year to house people in prison. and then in addition to that, uh, if they're all going to get out anyway, so uh, or most of them, I think 96, ninety seven percent of people are going to leave. so you know when they leave the question is, what product are you sending back into your community? So if while you have them in your custody, uh, you can give them skills training and you can help them, you know, deal with whatever substance abuse issues they have or mental issues and help them get the help they need and then help them transition back into the community, then what you're doing is you're reducing costs by not having them come back. You're also reducing future crime by getting them back into a job. So the criminal justice reform that we did brought programs that were very successful that helped people reenter society um, to the federal level. And then what we saw was 13 states copied that. Uh, and I think that by and large has been a very successful program. There are some things that come under the quote unquote uh, title of criminal justice reform uh, that this administration has not pushed for, so we're not supportive of every element of it. But when things are common sense, that can both help people live better lives. You know, we do believe in second chances. America is a country of second chance. We don't want to uh, judge people by their, their 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 worst mistake they've ever made. You know, people have the right for redemption. Uh, but we also want to keep communities safe. And you know, for me, this was a very personal one that I probably wouldn't have understood. You know, my father uh, went to prison for a year, and I went visit him every. A week. And it was something that uh, I met a lot of people who were in prison. And what I found was there were some people who were just bad people, um, you know, for whatever reason, they had rough childhoods or rough experiences. But there were also a lot of people in prison who are good people who made a mistake. And then they, you know, dug themselves into a hole. And then they just, you know, to try to get out, did worse and worse things to dig themselves out. And And then there were some people who, you know, made a mistake and they really wanted to turn around their lives. So, you know, just because these people are there, does this mean that you know, society should turn their back on them. They're Americans, they're human beings, and uh, and the right thing to do is to try to help them find their way. And so, you know, when I was in the private sector, we had a second chance program in our company where we took people out of Rikers and we gave them mentorship and training and helped teach them skills. And they became some of our most phenomenal uh, employees in the company. So uh, I do believe that you know we have a responsibility in society to you know help everyone and, and to do a difference. And this is one of the policies that's been uh, very successful in keeping our community safe, but also, uh, you know, you know being kind to the people who who need kindness the most. So in just one second, I
1: want to get into sort of the personal story of how you ended up uh, in the White House, not being in politics, uh, in charge of vast swaths of policy. We'll get into all that in just one second. first. As we approach the holiday season, You got a lot of errands on that list. What if you could do something to take some errands off your list? Well, this holiday season, more people will be mailing stuff than ever before, which means the post office is going to be busy. And you don't have time for that. All you need is stamps.com. They bring the post office and now UPS shipping directly to your computer. You can mail and ship anything from the convenience of your home or office. With stamps.com, anything you can do at the post office, you can do with just a few clicks. Plus, stamps.com will save you money with deep discounts you can't even get at the post office. There's a reason we've been using. Stamps.com at The Daily Wire since 2017, saving our money and not wasting our time. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS direct to your computer. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending out invoices or an online seller fulfilling orders during this record-setting holiday season, even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com handles it all with ease. You simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just get it ready and send it off. It's that good. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp, up to 40% off priority mail, up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. It saves you time. It saves you money. It's no wonder over 900,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Instead, head on over to Stamps.com, no risk. With my promo code Shapiro, you get a special offer. It includes a four-week trial plus free postage and digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on that microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Shapiro. That is Stamps.com, enter Shapiro, Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. So let's talk about your your personal history. So you started off in business, uh, you know, very heavily publicized. You did real estate deals in New York, some of which went well, some of which didn't go so well. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your your business history, because, especially because there's been all this myth-making out there about how. Uh, you know, you you were you were not great at business and then you come to the White House and now you're in the business of personal enrichment and it's all corrupt schemes. Can you talk a little bit about your, your sort of business history?
0: Sure. Well, look, you know, I was always raised in my family. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors and my father uh, always appreciated how amazing this country was. And, you know, growing up, I was always exposed to business and I had much more of an entrepreneurial uh, way. I bought my first deals when I was 19 years old, when I was in college and I was running a business then. Uh, and then, uh, I decided when I was in college to, to go to law school. So I applied to law school and business school and I was uh, attending that. And then I was working at the Manhattan district attorney's office. And, uh, and I thought I'd go into public service and be a prosecutor. And that's when my father got arrested. And I realized that I didn't want to be a prosecutor anymore after, you know, going through that experience. You know, I saw that, you know, people with the power could have a lot of ability to do good, but they also can cause a lot of harm inadvertently. And so, Uh, You know, after that, I I was kind of forced into my father's business. I I went through a rough period in that. Uh, And then um, I got involved in different entrepreneurial efforts, too. So uh, we sold my father's company, uh, by and large, in about 2007. And, uh, you know, I took, um, you know, what we had there and we rebuilt. So over about 10 years of running the company Uh, You know, we grew from about 70 employees to 700 employees. We did about $14 billion of transactions. Uh, You know, by and large, most of them were incredibly successful. And, you know, what we did in that business was very similar to you know what we do here which is we try to find the trends and be ahead of the trends so uh, you know we were going to a lot of the places where the markets were starting to evolve and uh, and creating product that was catering to you know a next generation of technology workers and 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 places where people wanted to be so uh, it was quite a successful endeavor over the years and uh, and I also did some technology businesses which also were uh, which were going well and then, uh, obviously, my father-in-law said he was running for uh, for president. And you know, with him, there was always something you know different. You know, we didn't uh, think that would impact our lives that much. But then, uh, as that evolved, you know, I you know he kept asking me to do more and more for his campaign. And you know as that uh, as that kept evolving, we saw that he was really speaking for a lot of people in America who people uh, weren't speaking for and who a lot of the politicians in Washington had uh, abandoned. And I give, you know the example of uh, being in New York on the Upper east side and thinking I was in an area with a lot of diversity of thought, uh, and then realizing that it actually was a tremendous, you know, uh, ecosystem that was self-reinforcing. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we'd go to, you know, a big uh, gala, like a Robin Hood event, and you'd hear these hedge fund managers get up and say, you know, we have to, uh, you know, call your congressman, call your senator, Common Core is what's going to save America. Uh, this is what's going to help, you know, the, the, the kids in the inner cities who are, you know, failing schools. And then... You know, you'd go on the road with uh, with my father-in-law and I hear him you know speak to a crowd of 20,000 people who were not uh, at all resembling you know what CNN was telling people they were. I mean according to CNN, these were like Ku Klux Klan rallies, whereas you know I go to these rallies and it was diverse uh, groups of hardworking Americans who just wanted to feel like people were, in Washington, we're paying attention to them, and he would get up and say, "We're going to end Common Core and send you know education back to the states." And the people got all excited. I said, "Wait, you know, I was being told in New York that you know Common Core is the greatest thing. What are these disconnects?" And so, you know, for me, I didn't have a very uh, political bent. I wasn't as as um, as uh, as deep on a lot of the policy uh, when I got involved in politics. But then, on each of these different issues, the president would ask me, "Okay, study this policy. Uh, tell me, you know, what has been tried." Uh, what has failed, why has it failed, and what's a strategy that we should approach, almost like, you know, a consultant. And I would put uh, these policy plans together, and that's how we would pursue a lot of these different things. So, you know, I I think it, for me, was really about understanding that there's two points of view, and there's probably about a 1,000 points of view, but there's differing sides, and there's a lot of nuance in these policies. And at the end of the day, the goal has to be to make progress and push forward. So uh, I got involved in politics in a very unexpected way, and obviously it's been... Uh, an incredible journey for me over the last years, but you know, uh, it's been an amazing honor to be able to work for you know all of these people, all, all of the the American people, and to uh, and to try to take areas that were either important to the president or important to uh, to myself, and to be able to focus on them, and then to to make a difference. You know, you look at the Middle East uh, again; we've made two peace deals there. You look at criminal justice reform; you know that's going to impact hundreds of thousands of families. Uh, you look at the, the the trade deals I was able to work on. Whether it was the uh, Mexico Canada trade deal, uh, which is the largest trade deal in history, that's going to you know bring five hundred thousand jobs to America. And so, you know, there are a lot of uh, benefits that can come when you're pushing on these policies. You Look at you know immigration. The president asked me to take on the project of building the wall. That's not something you know I ever thought I would do. Uh, but again, it was just you know project management, figuring out. Um, how do we get all the different bottlenecks condensed and work through and and you know now we're going to break 400 miles i think in a week or two and so that's flying up and the border's been very secure we're de- we're detaining a lot more illegal drugs at the border uh we're stopping a lot more human trafficking and that's you know i think helping our country you know have a strong border and that's important to the president and the people who elected him so uh, again it's been an uh, an unusual journey i probably most people do public service later in their life i was on a very good trajectory in my business uh, so it probably wasn't the optimal time for me to, to, to give up, you know, my business life and come do public service. But uh, I find that, you know, you have to follow when the opportunity comes, not when you're ready for the opportunity. And so, uh, like I said, you know, all these different chapters in my life have been unexpected. But, you know, I feel incredibly blessed to, to do the things that I've been fortunate to do.
1: So how did your political viewpoint itself change? So you mentioned, you know, kind of being in the Upper West Side, kind of the, the New York enclave of politics and then going out and visiting the middle of the country. Were your political views fairly well-defined before you entered the administration or before you started with the campaign? Or is it sort of miasmatic for you? And then over time, as you studied the issues, you ended up kind of where you are. And what are your guiding political principles, or is it mostly just pragmatism?
0: Uh, I try to be pragmatic. Look, nobody elected me, right? The Uh, people elected uh, Donald Trump as their president. He ran on a certain set of promises. You know, he felt it was very important to keep those promises. You know, I did have some uh, arguments with some of the people early on in the administration because, you know, they came in and, you know, they would say, well, these are the things we have to get done. I said, well, you know, look, it's different running a campaign to, to being in governing. Now we're playing with live ammunition and there's consequences to the decisions we make and and uh, we have to make sure that the president's, you know, having thoughtful, nuanced plans that he can execute in an effective way and, uh, and it's very important that we have people on, on all sides giving him their perspective so that uh, he's not being pigeonholed into, you know, one decision that he may not be ready to make. And so uh, what I've tried to do is just make sure that um, you know, when the president has a strong point of view on something that you have people uh, giving him the reasons to do it. You have people giving him maybe the opposing points of view when when that's uh, relevant, which is often, um, and then allow him to make uh, a decision. And then once he makes a decision, make sure that you have competent people uh, ready to get an execution and an implementation plan. And, you know, by and large, I, I, I think that, you know, uh, the president's uh, been focused on a lot of things which really put, you know, Americans first. And so, you know, one of the the great examples was trade. You know, during... Uh, The campaign. I remember seeing a New York Times article saying how Donald Trump has taken a hundred years of trade, uh, you know, uh, orthodoxy and he's turned it on its head. And there are some people who have, uh, but he, he didn't change his point of view. You know, one thing that's amazing about him as a politician is he's not somebody who reads polls and then changes. He has a point of view, and then I see the polls change towards him because he's willing to fight for what he believes in. He has a real point of view. And again, some things he's been able to convince people on. Others, but on trade, his whole notion was is that uh, these trade deals are terrible, right? Trade deficits do matter. He believes that they're tra- they wealth tra- uh, transfers of wealth. Uh, he believes that these multinational corporations, you know, in in in, uh, in collusion with a lot of the government, have created these terrible trade deals that basically, you know, offshored uh, a lot of our jobs. And, you know, the economists who were really ruling the day said, well, you know, this globalization is good because it means that the cost of goods for everyone goes down. But, you know, what what people didn't take into account was that, you know, the benefit may be distributed. So a T-shirt for everyone goes down by a dollar. But you have a lot of these factories that are leaving a lot of these cities. And then if there's no plan to help the people who are working in those factories uh, transition, the costs of globalization became very concentrated, uh, especially towards, you know, really hurting the middle class in America. So we saw between 2001 and 2016 about 70,000 factories close in America. About 5 million jobs go overseas. And those were great, you know, middle class working jobs. So President Trump came in, uh, first person to take on China. Uh, you know, the first uh, trade deal in 20 years that uh, in the USMCA that was endorsed by the labor unions. And, uh, and he basically made deals that were here to bring manufacturing back to America uh, to benefit uh, the middle class. And I think that if you look at a lot of these inner cities uh, that have problems today, a lot of them do stem from the bad trade deals, right? So if you had a factory in Baltimore, uh, a steel factory or whatever it was that was shipped overseas because it was cheaper based on these trade deals to do it. You know, maybe half the people found new jobs. Maybe half the people didn't. Some went to social, uh, social, uh, uh, you know, welfare and different agencies. Some people uh, committed crimes. Some people, uh, you know, different issues. And and if we didn't have a way to transition them to another job, that has reverberations, you know, downstream. What happens to their children, their next generation? And so, uh, I do think a lot of the problems in our inner cities do stem from these terrible trade deals. Uh, that were made by you know politicians in Washington who you know maybe bought into an orthodoxy that wasn't thinking about you know the American people and so you know President Trumps uh, ran on a on a campaign of of America first and and you know, I remember you know again as somebody whose grandparents you know went through the Holocaust you know the the critics in Washington uh, said well that's a very anti-Semitic. Uh, 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 notion. And I said, well, how's it anti? I said, you know, if you're running for president of the United States and your notion is to put America first, I said, how is that not a good, uh, a good slogan? And then I was also saying, why is that controversial to people here in in Washington, D.C.? But, you know, but by and large, he's just taken a very uh, non- a Washington approach to a lot of things. He's taken a very common sense approach. Some things have been maybe a little bit more Republican, some things have maybe been a little bit more traditionally Democrat. But I think he's paved a real uh, policy space for himself that I think by and large is built on pragmatism. And I think he's also gotten a lot of things done. and he's fought hard to do it. I mean, a lot of people say there's a lot of noise coming out of Washington uh, you know over the last four years, but I don't think he would have been able to have achieved the results he had. Uh, had it not been for all the, you know, making people uncomfortable. What I find in Washington is people are very good at complaining about the status quo. They can tell you what's wrong with something, but then when you try to change it, uh, they get very, very nervous. And, you know, a business person thinks different than a politician. When you're in business, you uh, you basically say, my job is to try to do something because not making a decision is a decision, right? So doing nothing is 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 a decision. And then you say, look, I know where I'm trying to get to, so I have to do everything possible to create a higher probability that I'll achieve Uh, the upside scenario and do everything possible to mitigate uh, the downside scenario. And that's basically what the president's done time and time again. But he's made a lot of people very uncomfortable. uh, But we wouldn't have been able to make the progress we made uh, with everyone in Washington being comfortable.
1: So in just a second, I want to ask you about your involvement with the Trump family, because now we all think of you uh, as part of the Trump family. But obviously, your last name is Kushner. So I want to ask about how you met your wife, actually, (laughs) in just one second. But first, hiring can be incredibly complicated. I mean, let's say that you have a couple of very excellent employees, but they get married to each other, and then they go on like, apparently like a six-month honeymoon. At some point, you're going to have to replace them, Mathis and and Caitlin. What's the best way to do that? Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter does the work for you. Right now, you can try Zip Recruiter for free at ziprecruiter.com slash dailywire. First, when you post a job on Zip Recruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 job sites with just one click. Then... ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and then actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the very first day. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ziprecruiter.com dailywire. That is ziprecruiter.com D-A-I-L-Y-W-I-R-E. You might be stressed out about needing to fill a job. Let's well, get it done right now. ZipRecruiter, try it for free at ziprecruiter.com dailywire. That's ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So let's talk about how you met Ivanka, because you're a human. I know that everybody thinks of you uh, on the outside, and I don't mean to be insulting as sort of, you know, robot inside Trump administration doing Trump administration bidding, but you obviously are a human being. Not only are you a human being, as it turns out, you have beautiful kids and a a beautiful wife and a beautiful family. Thank you. How did you meet Ivanka? Because this is obviously how you end up working inside the the Trump administration.
0: So uh, again, I was in New York. I was doing, um, you know, a bunch of uh, real estate and technology and publishing and, uh, and my, uh, a broker, actually, I worked with a, a gentleman named Moshe actually said, you have to meet, uh, this woman Ivanka. And I knew who she was obviously. And so he set us up for lunch. I think she was trying to sell me a building, uh, for a price that didn't make any sense at lunch. So we, we got together, uh, and it was just a nice time. And then a couple of weeks later, she out and said, "So let's get together again. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where it went. And, uh, you know, we built a very, very, uh, close relationship. I think we, I always say that if I wasn't, you know, so attracted to my wife, she'd just be my best friend. And uh, I found that, you know, she was a great person for uh, me to be able to, um, you know, uh, to, to, to learn from. And, and I think that we, we just found a great bond, you know, exploring the world together. And, uh, and I think we shared very similar values of, of family. And I, I also think that, you know, with everything that, um, that I'd been through with my father uh, in my life, I had a very um, strong uh, maybe sense for what in life was real and what was not real, and I tried very hard to uh, not spend my time on uh, my time on trivial things. And I feel like Ivanka also had a, a very unique childhood where, you know, she was exposed to a lot of things, and and I think that she also had a real desire to to focus on you know what matters. And for us, you know, it really was about uh, we explored our faith together. It was about family, uh, and it was about you know living a life that you know we felt. That we could judge ourselves by our values not you know based on the viewpoints of other people and you know i think we've been very blessed to obviously have a beautiful family we have incredible friends and uh you know even through this whole experience you know the amount of friends who we've been disappointed by have been you know virtually non-existent because we didn't have friends who were trivial people right they were people based on you know common values and and common interests and uh and a lot of people who have understanding that the world is a nuanced place and you know as we went through this exploration of obviously politics and you know, obviously the the world of conservatism and republicans which was maybe a little bit more foreign to us initially uh, we had a lot of people who uh instead of you know being dogmatic about it based on what their uh, preconceived notions were these were people who basically wanted to explore with us and understand what we were seeing and see you know the other point of view that they necessarily weren't seeing before and so uh, you know, Ivanka's just been an amazing partner, an amazing friend, and she's an amazing mother and just an amazing person. And so uh, I'm just very, very blessed to to, to have her as my wife and, and obviously love her very much.
1: And how did you uh, guys decide where did you want to be religiously? Uh, so obviously I'm, I'm a religious Jew. I'm an observant Jew. You guys are observant as well. How did you decide together where you wanted to be on on that score?
0: Um, so it really started with exploration, right? You know, obviously, uh, my faith is something that was, was, is very important to me and something I was brought up with. And, uh, and as, uh, as we, uh, started, you know, getting to know each other, you know, dating wise, uh, this was something she noticed and she said, you know, it's something that I'd be happy to learn more about. And, um, and, you know, I started, uh, obviously, you know, you know, figuring out, you know, what's the best way to, to introduce somebody to, uh, to Judaism. And, uh, and I started out actually with uh, with the notion of you know you know how do you explain you know the fact that the Jews are basically a persecuted people they've been that way for you know for thousands of years but you know the notion that you know you have to have faith in God and and uh, you know how do you explain some of these uh, these things that happen and and the notion is that that basically uh, you know the the analogy that uh, that the rabbi that we were learning with at the time gave was that. You know, when you're a child and you come out of the womb and you see the first thing, you know, the people who are caring for you, they give you, you know, a shot. And, you know, you're saying, you know, the baby from their perspective is saying, you know, how is it that, you know, this person who's supposed to care for me is actually injecting me with a needle and causing me pain. But what that, you know, child doesn't understand is that that's actually a, you know, a vaccine or a drug that's going to help prevent them from future suffering. And so, you know, the notion was, is that you have to have, you know, faith in God and then Obviously, the rituals that you go through are uh, something that you uh, that you do to try to bring you closer to God and, and, and closer together as a family, and uh, and we just explored it together. And I think that there were certain things that we chose to to take on and certain things we didn't feel comfortable taking on. But uh, what we were able to do is to you know create uh, a lifestyle that we were very comfortable with and that you know we felt allowed us to optimize both for. Um, you know, for 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 meaning and for happiness, and then obviously the values that we wanted to build a family around, and uh, so we were very blessed in that regard. So uh, now let's shift to how it is
1: working inside the Trump administration with President Trump directly. So you go from being in the business world, running your own business, to suddenly you're working for Donald Trump, who from the outside appears to be uh, an interesting boss. What what is it like to work with? Uh, let's putting it mildly. How is it how is it to work with uh, President Trump on a daily basis? What is it? That uh, people on the outside get right about it, and what is it that people on the outside get wrong about working with and for President Trump?
0: So uh, I, I think the best description uh, from an external uh, point of view that I saw after the last election was a woman wrote um, that the media took Donald Trump literally, but not seriously, but the voters took him seriously, but not literally. And, you know, what I understand about him is is, first of all, I'll say it's been an absolute you know thrill working with him. I think he's obviously a brilliant person. Um, You know, he can't have accomplished everything that he's accomplished in his life without being, you know, a brilliant person. And, you know, I've also, you know, gone through this experience with him of seeing him, you know, adapt to politics and then also adapt to being president and continue to grow uh, and make decisions. Right. And what he's really done is is he's increased the metabolism of of government, you know, in a a tremendous way. Right. He's very demanding as a boss. Um, And during that, you know, the cream rises. And I'm not going to say a bad word, but that sinks, you know, along the way. Uh, but what he is able to do is um, is, uh, is is really push for results. And so uh, what he finds is that he's very uh, trusting of, of of the different uh, you know uh, uh, agency heads or people he's hiring to do jobs. And you know he likes to agree with them on what you know what the goal is. And then he gives them a fair amount of latitude uh, to try to you know accomplish it. Unless it's something that he's you know tremendously focused on, then he'll have very strong points of view on how to do it. But you know for me working with him, uh, I, I find that you know it's um, it's very interesting to, to watch him work, you know, other world leaders, to watch him work, you know, members of Congress. He, he likes to keep people off balance. I think that's where he finds uh, his strategic advantage. And I've seen him, uh, again, outmaneuver some of, of the toughest uh, and, and smartest world leaders that we deal with, because, again, he's trying to always fight for America's interests. But he's the first president that truly understands, I think, America, American power, uh, the power that we have economically and um I think a lot of politicians are trained to stay away from uncertainty. They see uncertainty as an enemy because the media jumps all over them. Uh, he's used uncertainty as as a weapon, and I think he's used that to create outcomes that you know many people uh, didn't think would be possible. And then just you know on a personal level, I, I find that every day is different. Um, you know you never know what issue he's he's on. You know he's not. Uh, a lot of people uh, try to manage a, a boss. You know, he's not a boss that's manageable. You know, he likes to get his information from uh, from a lot of different sources. And I think that that's a healthy thing because, again, he doesn't want, you know, a filtered point of view. He'll want to speak to, um, you know, tons of people. And that's, I think, a very, very good thing. Um, and then again, he's very common sense and he's not afraid to take on fights. You know, sometimes we, you know, wish he took on a few less fights, but the reality is, is he views it like he was given this opportunity from the American people uh, to, to to lead the greatest country in the world, and you know he's going to spend every minute of every day, you know, fighting uh, to try to push forward on the issues that he cares about, whether it's a small issue or a big issue, uh, he's going to be pushing forward. So he's very demanding. I mean, it's a it's truly a 24/7 job. I'll get calls from him at one o'clock in the morning. I'll get calls at five o'clock in the morning um, and, uh, you know, he'll want to know the latest on this. And sometimes I'll say how the, you know, why is he thinking about this issue at this moment in time? But, you know, he's a very prolific reader. He's, he's always staying on top of the news and, and what's happening. And so it's, it's quite funny. And I'd say the one final thing is that, um, he's actually very funny too. And, And so, you know, when you're with him, he has a great sense of humor and, uh, and, uh, you know, I find the media doesn't do a good job. They, they, to lose their sense of humor when it comes to him but you know he'll be sarcastic or hold joke but he's got a very good sense of irony and uh and uh and it's never boring and i i will just say you know finally that you know i think that you know i've been blessed to work with some incredible people at the white house if you look at the people who are really you know at the campaign and then now have worked all the way through there's you know a very core group of people who uh really love the president understand the president and who are you know devoted to helping him see through what he started and I would say that that group's been, you know, incredibly successful. And, you know, I guess, you know, I don't know how politics was before I got here. I Again, I, it was never something I focused on as as closely. But I guess there's maybe a new thing of trying to vilify uh, the people, you know, around a, a principal, not just a principal now in politics. But, you know, these are all people who could be making a lot more money, working a lot less, seeing their families more. Uh, but they don't do that. You know, they take the abuse. Uh, they they work for lower salaries than they could be making. Uh, and they work 24-7 because they believe that this country is worth fighting for. And it's very uh, much a big inspiration for me to be able to work with such incredible people. And uh, again, you know, over the last four years, if you take all of the emotion out and you take all the crazy things, like they investigated us for a couple of years. And I saw all these great people having to get lawyers and do depositions on something that we had nothing to do with, which was... Uh, you know the 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 threat of a um, the allegation of a russia collusion and you know everyone's stuck in the pocket and they they knew that you know what they were fighting for was good but if you look at just the results that we achieved obviously pre-pandemic and i think that you know we're seeing the recovery uh, go very quickly uh thanks again to the stimulus and the leadership of of the president and the job that this administration's done uh to make sure that the that the pandemic was less severe than it it would have been otherwise and that the economic fallout uh, has been a lot less severe than it's been in other countries. Um, I think I saw that the the median household income, you know, grew by almost, you know, six times, you know, in, in his three years, what it did in the previous eight years beforehand. And uh, we were seeing, you know, the we were seeing, uh, you know, one thing I always see with politicians, they talk about a K-shaped recovery now uh, where the wealth gap is increasing, uh, the wealth gap was increasing for the 15 years before. Over the first three years of President Trump, the wealth gap was decreasing uh, for the first time in decades because you had the people on the uh, the workers were getting their wa- their wages the fastest. And I do think we're on our way back to that uh, economy. And obviously, the pandemic is uh, is a, is a I guess once in a century type of uh, type of uh, type of challenge that our country's really stepped up to the to to the plate and has and has done a lot of things to to combat it, but. Uh, but I do think that we're going to come out of this even stronger because if you think about strength globally, it's really more of a relative thing than an absolute thing. And as our economy uh, grows much quicker, as as the strength that we uh, put into place, uh, you know, manufacturing wise, and and uh, getting rid of dependencies and 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 juicing our economy. Uh, I think that will lead to America being in an even uh, stronger relative place in the world than it's been, especially as all these trade deals that we've made over the last years kick in, the deregulation's still in place, the lower taxes are still in place. Um, and I think that uh, that's going to be a very exciting uh, couple of chapters ahead if we stay the course. So in just a second, I want to
1: ask you about the administration's handling of COVID-19. But first, lots of people are targeting your data online. I'm not just talking about your ISP. I'm talking about online hackers. People want your data. And very often, people will target you based on your belief system. I mean, if you look at social media right now, you can see cancel culture is coming for you. The left would love to silence and boycott any voices that they don't agree with. Twitter was supposed to be an open platform. Ha, ha, ha. Well, now, instead of letting social media sites cancel your right to free speech, how about canceling them instead? Instead of giving them your data so they can make money off of you, instead, you could use ExpressVPN. VPN. If you ever wondered how free-to-access sites make their money, they they track your searches, video history, everything you click on, and they sell your valuable data. When you use ExpressVPN, all of that stops. You anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. And ExpressVPN couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap the button on your phone or computer, you're now protected. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from hackers and internet bad guys. Listen, you wouldn't leave all of your valuables out in a public place just waiting for somebody to steal them. Why would you leave your data out there to be grabbed? It's finally time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy at expressvpn.com slash Ben. When you visit my special link, you get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash Ben, expressvpn.com slash Ben to protect your data today. So let's talk about the COVID-19 handling. So obviously, uh, President Trump it appeared that, frankly, he was on a glide path to re-election before COVID-19, considering the performance of the economy, uh, which was historically good. Uh, right now, even now, there was a poll from Gallup showing 56% of Americans say now, in the middle of the pandemic, they are for, uh, that, that they are better off than they were four years ago, which is still an incredibly high statistic compared to past presidencies. Um, and then the pandemic hits, and obviously, uh, this you know is a is a curveball like none that I've seen in my lifetime with with lockdowns in major cities across the country. Uh, There are some stories that were coming out uh, specifically about the administration. Uh, There was one story suggesting that there was politicization of the COVID response, that for some reason the administration was treating blue states differently than red states. I was wondering if you could respond to that. And then overall, uh, the COVID-19 response, uh, which seems to me, uh, I've been saying for a while, uh, seems sort of uh, striated. One, I would say, avenue is the actual policy, which I think is quite good or as good as you could expect from a federal government. Uh, And the second is the rhetoric, which seems to have been uh, incredibly Confused the message was shifting fairly often. How can you? How do you think Americans ought to rate the COVID nineteen response? What are the factors that they should take into account?
0: So, uh, look, it's it's a big challenge uh, for the world, right? Every country's had uh, a different challenge that's been put on them, and uh, I think that it's also an unprecedented situation. So you have to think about how our governments, you know, geared to respond. You know, our situation was is that uh, you know we were told that if we didn't take certain actions, there would be you know upwards of two million you know Americans that would uh, that would die, and 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 what they asked the president to do was basically to shut down, uh, you know, the greatest economy that our country had seen in a long time. And President Trump said, "Look, you know, obviously losing one life is is too many." So we took those uh, very strong actions. And then uh, what we saw was a series of of fears that uh, that were being hyped every day um, in the media. Whether it was the fact that our frontline workers weren't going to have enough, uh, you know, masks and gloves and gowns and all of these items. People were going to die because they weren't going to get ventilators. Um, There wasn't going to be enough hospital capacity. And then what we did is we just, you know, one by one, we dealt with every governor, whether it was a red state governor or a blue state governor. I mean, the stories that came out, uh, you know, there's one story that Vanity Fair wrote, which was a total joke. They didn't even reach out to the White House, and they have nothing to substantiate their claim that we uh, politicized this or that we uh, were just dealing with red state governors. Actually, uh, Governor Murphy and Governor Cuomo's chief of staff both went on the record in a subsequent article. They didn't call them, obviously, to say that it wasn't true. But I mean, there was a period of 30 days where I probably spoke to Andrew Cuomo once or twice a day every day. I spoke to Governor Murphy or his chief of staff um, every day. And and we were just problem solving in real time because it wasn't something that uh, any of us had experience doing. But it was about, you know, making sure that we were pinpointing uh, problems and working towards it. And so you know, when we see on the news, uh, you know, uh, doctors from, uh, from the public health system in New York City saying that they were uh, running out of masks. I, I literally got on the phone myself with the head of the public health system and said, you know, are you guys out of masks? He says, no, we're not out of masks, but we have a one week supply. I said, well, how many masks are you burning through a day? And he gave me the number. I said, well, look, you know, just tomorrow you'll have delivered to you a one-month supply of N95 masks and we'll get it to you. And they were very appreciative. So what we did is we kept trying to find the bottlenecks and then solving them. And what happened was is you had a lot of hoarding in the system, right? A lot of countries have uh, nationalized uh, health, which is why they provide poor health and health care. Then here in America, we have uh, much more private sector-driven healthcare, um, healthcare uh, service providers as well as the... Uh, logistics and distribution are all private sectors. So what we did was we uh, very quickly, you know, figured out where it was, and we created a control tower approach. We brought in uh, the top military uh, professionals, logisticians, uh, people who are experts at logistics to help us uh, do this. And again, it was frustrating the politicization. I mean, we had senators who basically every day would say they should be bringing in a general uh, who's great at logistics do We're saying, well, we did. We had an admiral who was great at logistics, uh, you know, working on this, uh, and then. Uh, you know, they were saying, you know, you need to have a plan. We we had plans. We worked on these with the governors, and we we made sure that testing ramped as quickly as possible. And uh, and again, there'll always be people who will be critical, but by and large, we met the challenges as they were able to do. And uh, obviously, we judge ourselves both in absolute terms—did we meet the challenge? But also, uh, you know, relative to our peers, and we've outpaced a lot of our peers' uh, countries in almost every regard. And so. Uh, You know, it's been a big challenge, uh, but also, America, the president believes in the federalist system, which is that, you know, you obviously have to work with the different governors. Some governors were very competent, some governors were less competent, uh, but our job was just to constantly try to get them the resources they need and to help them learn how to do the different tasks that were required through that process. And so, uh, again, I think that, uh, you know, when history looks back on this, they'll realize that when you take all the different factors into account. Uh, you know, I do believe that the federal government rose to the challenge, and uh, and I think that we we did a, a, a pretty good job of getting uh, you know the stuff that was needed to the places where it was needed, and making sure that we had the right awareness and and the right leadership to to spread the information. But obviously, it was a very chaotic uh, time in in many regards. So
1: let's talk about the uh, the election now. Obviously, we look at the national polling, and uh, we're recording this. Uh, in the middle of, uh, of October, a couple weeks into October. And in the national polling, uh, the president is down double digits in most of the polls by the Real Clear Politics poll average. He's running competitively uh, in a lot of the swing states, but he seems to be down in the Midwest particularly. And some of the states that should not be swing states are polling really closely. At the same time, the president polls ahead of Joe Biden on what people say is their number one issue, the economy. Uh, again, there's a poll that shows that a vast majority of Americans say they're better off now than they were four years ago. And I've been saying for a while on the show uh, and publicly that it seems like this is almost entirely a referendum on how people perceive Trump personally. That if you were to look at the Trump administration policy, Americans, they even say this in polling, like Trump's policies better than they like Biden's policies. Um, but they seem to have serious reservations about Trump as a, as a human being and namely his public persona, the Twitter, uh, the constant feeling of, of chaos and all this. What would you say to Americans who are concerned about you know, how the president approaches this sort of stuff? And uh, and what can you say to, to make them more quiescent about it, considering, again, uh, that that is a bridge that is, I think, going to have to be, is going to have to, a gap that's going to have to be bridged in order for the president to win re-election?
0: Right. So what I would say is that, look, he is who he is. And I think that um, the president has been this way for a long time. He ran, you know, exactly, you know, being who he was last time and people elected him. And uh, over the last years, he's you know he hasn't changed and become somebody else, and uh, he's also kept all of his promises you know along the way. And uh, and from a governing point of view, he did exactly the things that um, he did exactly the things that he said he was going to do. I mean, today uh, as we're talking, you know, on the Hill, they have the hearings for you know the third Supreme Court justice. The president you know promised he was going to appoint justices from a list uh, because a lot of conservatives weren't sure. You know, you know if the president, you know, shared their same uh, beliefs, and he says, well, you know, he came up with an unconventional political idea, which was, well, let me give out a list, and I'll I'll show you who I would choose from, and he put out that list, and he selected, you know, from his list every time there's been a vacancy on the court, uh, and I think in a lot of things the voters know what he's going to do, and I think that you know people in America have very little tolerance for politicians who say one thing and then do something else. And uh, and I think at the end of the day, they know with Trump what they're going to get, which I think is is a good thing. And what I'll just say now is that, look, we saw a very similar thing in 2016. I think that obviously it's a, close, uh, a closer election right now than it should be, given where uh, the economy was pre-pandemic. But I do think we're recovering well. I think if you look at all the different states, again, I spent the last couple of days talking to all of our different state directors. Uh, they're all telling me they feel like they're in better shape uh, in their states than they were in 2016 at this time. And so, you know, we'll see a lot's going to happen. I always say a day in the world of Trump is an eternity, but three weeks in the world of Trump uh, is definitely an eternity. And so uh, I think he told me at one point, he says, I think my news cycle at this point is about two hours. So, you know, it's a uh, It's a different world and and i do think that it's also going to depend on who votes you know i think that he's got uh, a lot of people throughout the country who are very motivated to get out there to get out there and vote Uh, i also think you have a situation where you have a lot of people who support him but you know they don't want to fight you think about you know the abuse that people take uh you know last night we were talking there was a police chief who was fired in pennsylvania because his wife posted on facebook that she was voting for trump because he was the only candidate who supported law enforcement and the police chief got fired for doing that. I think you have a lot of people who are afraid to say that they're for Trump uh, because they've been bullied by the media. And that's not what we should be doing in a tolerant society. I think people should be able to you know, express their points of view. But what I find in Washington, like the lowest form of, of, of defense is when you are losing the argument, you just you know, say, oh, that person's a racist or that person's an anti-Semite. And the amount of people I've seen who have been totally unhinged Uh, when they kind of make these allegations towards the president without looking at his record on either issue uh, is just very disappointing to me. And I think that people like that actually degrade the discourse in our country. So, you know, if you don't like that the president tweets or communicates with the people on social media i I would tell you it's the opposite the one of the benefits of you know this president is that you always know what he's thinking you know at at any time just have to you know whenever i'll get a call from him the first thing i do is i go and i look at twitter to say what's he been you know what's he thinking about right now (laughs) and i i think that that's actually you know in a lot of ways a good thing and so you know look i I obviously have a lot of faith in the american people they'll they'll make the right decision and uh and i think that you know will be an exciting couple of weeks ahead
1: And so in a second, I'm going to ask you about what the closing plan is, because there's only a couple of weeks until the election. Uh, What is the closing messaging going to be? But first, I don't know about you. I'm spending an awful lot of time these days consuming media, whether it is watching TV or whether it is listening to other people's podcasts. Now, I want more information all the time, and that means I rely on my Raycon earbuds. Using a pair of premium wireless earbuds, it's a must, especially if you can get them at less than half the price of the other guys. That's why I recommend wireless earbuds from Raycon. Raycon's newest model, the Everyday E25s, those are the best ones yet. Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, more compact design, a noise isolating fit. Raycon earbuds, they're stylish and discreet, no dangling wires, no stems. Give them a try. Raycon has a 45 day free return policy so you can make sure they are the pair of wireless earbuds for you. I mean, I love my Raycons because they fit my ear perfectly. Unlike the one size fits all version that can kind of fall out of your ear, Raycons allow you to personalize and customize your Raycons so they fit your ear the way they should. For a limited time, get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash Ben. That's buyraycon.com slash Ben for a special 15% discount on Raycon wireless earbuds. Make sure to check it out now while the deal is running. buirayco dot slash Ben. Again, that's buyraycon.com slash Ben for 15% off your order today. Okay, so let's talk about the, the closing plan for, for Trump's reelect effort. So you mentioned Twitter. Obviously, I am definitely a member of the coterie that says that I wish that the president <laughs> would drop his phone in the toilet. Uh, and uh, I wish that the messaging from the White House were a lot more... Uh, singular, uh, because when the president is on teleprompter, whether it's a State of the Union address or whether he is speaking uh, in Eastern Europe, those speeches are the high points of his presidency. I would say that probably three quarters of the low points of his presidency have been things that get tweeted uh, that then immediately become a news cycle for a week. Uh, th- there are certainly things where, where the media you know take comments that he makes and, and spin them completely out of context. The most obvious example being the bizarre assumption that he was not denouncing white supremacy when he literally said he would denounce white supremacy on a stage with Joe Biden uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, but what, given the fact that we are now in a shortened time frame and that there has to be really one singular message going forward to the election, what, what is Trump's closing pitch going to be? Not only for himself, because the record is pretty good, but against Joe Biden in particular, because it seems like a lot of the 2016 election was reliant on the fact that there was a wellspring of deep antipathy for Hillary Clinton, the American public had been built up for, for decades previous. She was, by poll numbers, the most unpopular politician in, in America. Uh, Joe Biden, there's not the same sort of antipathy. So what does the campaign against Biden look like in order to you know put him in the spotlight a little bit?
0: So Biden is obviously different than Hillary Clinton. You know, people don't hate him as much, but he also hasn't accomplished anything. And so, you know, when people look at him, it's 47 years of, you know, just kind of hanging around government and being on every side of every issue. Uh, I think that the Biden campaign is basically saying, well, you know, you failed on COVID and then basically saying, but if we're elected, we'll do absolutely nothing different. Right. I mean, they laid out their whole plan for what they would do, which is basically everything that we've done, which the media doesn't cover. And uh, and I do think the accomplishments that the president's had, especially towards, you know, getting the vaccine and in record time uh, and all these therapeutics has been incredible. I think Trump's argument is, look, if you elect me, I'll give you the greatest economy you've ever seen. And, uh, you know, I did it once. I built a great economy. You were doing well. Your family was doing well. Um, A lot of that's still in place. And if you elect me, I'm very confident I could do it again. So I think that's really, you know, the balance. I think much deeper, though, what you're seeing with the media and a lot of Washington is that, you know, Washington doesn't like outsiders. Again, a lot of you know why i was a threat to washington is because you know i'm somebody who's focused on results and process uh, results and 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 how do you you know drive things to an outcome you know washington is focused on on process it's people focused on how do you just go forward and then ultimately not get a lot done but president trump's brought accountability he's brought a different sensibility uh, he's destroyed a lot of the institutions he's not going to their cocktail parties he's not playing by their rules he's not uh, you know, doing what the Washington media and the Washington politicians not acting in the way they want him to, uh, and they don't like that. And so, you know, a big part of, of what this represents is they feel like they missed it last time. You know, they, 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 they allowed president Trump to, uh, to get in and, and, uh, and, and they want to do everything possible this time to make sure that he doesn't get another chance. But uh, I do feel like after four years, you know, the president's gotten a lot done. Uh, but he also really now knows how Washington works. He's also brought with him a lot of untraditional people to Washington, right? So you think about the people who are traditionally qualified. How are you qualified to be in Washington, right? You're usually having worked in Washington before. So all the people, you know, either worked for the Bush dynasty or they worked for the Clinton dynasty. So, you know, it was really all the same thing, right? You know, they may have been wearing a blue shirt or a red shirt, but they really were all on the same team, um, and I think the American people saw it left less last election as a left versus right election. I think they saw more uh, as an inside versus outside election. And I think you'll have a lot of the same thing. And I, I actually think that, you know, the media and a lot of the people in Washington help the president because what happens is, is he does make mistakes. He's not perfect, but, uh, but they always overreact and overpursue, and they expose kind of the hypocrisy. And... Uh, and kind of you know what they're trying to protect here, which is kind of their kingdom uh, of influence. And by doing that, I think the American people see that they have somebody who's you know who's truly fighting for them uh, versus people who are kind of trying to take power for themselves. and uh, And I think that that's really what a big part of this will also come down to. And so, you know, this is what I call the swamp's last stand. and uh, And I think that this is really the last chance for the American people to truly have an outsider uh, in Washington and hopefully when the president wins he'll be in a position where he'll uh, just accelerate the changes uh, that he's that he's been able to make and really uh, drain the swamp and and truly bring you know power in america back to the american people and take it away from the insiders who have had it for for decades and quite frankly who have sent our jobs overseas who have got us into all these endless wars uh, one of the things I see with the president is the amount of resistance he gets when he's trying to, you know, make these peace deals or, or bring uh, the troops home. I mean, the resistance in Washington is tremendous. And so, you know, you do have a military industrial complex. You do have a lot of people who you know, who 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 don't want to see these wars end. But, you know, everyone in the last election said that if President Trump was elected, you know, immediately we'd go into World War III. Well, you know, you look at what's happened over three and a half years now, and, you know, he's made peace deals, whereas the people before him started wars, and he's bringing the troops home, and he's started no wars. You know, he hasn't sent jobs overseas. He's made trade deals that have actually brought jobs home. And so, you know, it's a real difference, and that's a real threat, I think, to the Washington Uh, establishment. And so obviously they're fighting him now with everything they have.
1: So obviously there's that you mentioned draining the swamp and there's this accusation that's been put out there by the media uh, that the administration has engaged in self-dealing. I want to give you the chance to uh, rebut that accusation.
0: Uh, So again, you know, the, the biggest difference between the Trump family and I would say, you know, a lot of the other politicians is that you know, the Trump family was a business family. They were doing very well financially. They were making money, my wife, myself, and all our, of our endeavors. And the president, we gave those endeavors up and we gave up our ability to make money to go and do public service. A lot of other people get into public service and then become wealthy. Them and their families become wealthy off of that. So, you know, again, especially in the first years, there were all of these uh, allegations of potential conflicts of interest or areas where there could be compromise, but you know, after four years, nobody's actually found any areas where anything's anyone's done anything wrong. And so, you know, again, when we came into government, we looked at, uh, for me personally and my wife, we looked at. Um, We spoke to the ethics lawyers. We said, you know, tell us what we need to divest. We ended up divesting all those things. My wife had her uh, clothing company, which was making, it was doing about $500 million a year in revenue. It was a fast growing company. Uh, Ultimately, she gave that up so that she could devote herself full time uh, to serving government. And one of the things I joke is that she had a mission driven company that was making money. She gave up the company and she was praised for it by all of the, uh, the liberal media. Uh, and then she gave up the company to just focus on a mission. And then, you know, the media turned against her because they saw her as a threat in that regard. and uh, And so, you know, I look at all these things, and I say that, you know, it's it's obviously uh, come at a great cost to uh, to myself, financially, to the Trump family to do this service. but uh, but we all believe that it's been incredibly worth it. You think about the impact we've been able to make uh, on so many people. You know I you know people ask me all the time, you know what's been my favorite part about being in government? And I always say that, uh, the thing that I've enjoyed the most is is working on the the clemency issues with the president, right? Where you take you know a case in before him and you're able to make a pitch for you know why somebody who has life in prison deserves to be let out, and the president will take the time, study it, analyze it, ask probing questions. But you have a lot of cases like you know like Alice Johnson, where he decides, let me give this person a second chance, and you uh, save that person's life. And so you think about you know sacrifice that you make, and then you think you're making. You know, peace deals that are going to you know keep American troops uh, safer and make you know the Middle East you know more safe. You think about uh, you know obviously doing trade deals that are going to bring you know millions of jobs back to America, and then you think about you know doing criminal justice reform that's going to give you know people more hope, second chance, create less crimes in communities. And these are just a few small examples of things that we've been able to work on for a few years. So uh, I do believe that. Uh, the benefits that the country's received from having an executive as its leader, from having business people, you know uh, going through this has been tremendous. And I think for you know for uh, for myself and for uh, for the fa- for the Trump family, uh, you know we don't feel bad for ourselves. We look at it and say, even though, you know we've been harassed with investigations and and accused of all these things which they didn't do, you know, the the financial sacrifice and and obviously the the fights that we've had to endure. Uh, have been well worth it because in life every opportunity has a cost, and I think that you know the cost that we've uh, that we've endured to do this uh, is very small uh, relative to the opportunity that we've had uh, to make an impact uh, on so many different areas of importance that you know have benefited a lot of people here in America and throughout the world.
1: I will say that uh, when your wife shut down her clothing company, my wife was very very upset about it because she uh, shopped there. <laughs> I shop at the clothing company a lot, uh, so I, I want to ask you about how your family has dealt with all of the pressure. But first, if you're an investor, one thing that's very important, being in early on innovative companies. Don't you wish that you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Well, with our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing, like Beyond Meat, or being bought by other companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups on the planet. Their in-depth due diligence includes meeting with management teams and generally comprehensive vetting of deals they decide to make part of their own portfolio. Well, once our crowd has selected a deal, they then offer accredited investors the opportunity to invest alongside them with the same exact terms. If you are an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com, slash ben and review the current deals. No payment is involved until you decide to participate in a deal. As you review deals, you have access to our crowd's investor relations team who can talk to you directly on the phone about your personal investment goals. The Investment professionals at our crowd have already reviewed thousands of companies invested hundreds of millions of dollars, closed investments in over 200 companies, chosen dozens of companies that have made exits. Accredited investors can participate in single company deals for as little as 10,000 bucks or one of our crowd's funds for as little as $50,000. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in SiaBra, an AI-enabled platform that uncovers online disinformation and deepfakes. As this information becomes increasingly threatening to global brands, media, and governments, Cyabra reports it's uniquely positioned to serve this potential $6.1 billion market. You could get in early on Cyabra and other unique opportunities at ourcrowd.com/ben. If you're interested in investing, you need to join rcrowd. The rcrowd account is free. Just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com. Obviously, being a public figure, you, you were a semi-public figure before. Now you're an incredibly public figure, uh, as, as I alluded to at the top of the show. Uh, you've been portrayed as literally the devil by by many members of sort of the left wing media, people at the Lincoln Project and and all that sort of stuff. Have have you and the family dealt with uh, the not only increased scrutiny, which goes along with the job, but the tremendous levels of hatred? And it really hasn't just been you, obviously. It's been everybody who's worked in close quarters with the president. Anybody who's apparently within a 300 foot radius of the president uh, becomes uh, a member of the coterie uh, of, of the targeted. So how ha- have you been able to deal with that as a family?
0: Um, I think look, the first six months it was a, it was more uh, it was maybe a little harder because the notion was is that you know again, we are making all these sacrifices, giving up you know great lives and you know great opportunities and great opportunities to do wealth creation to go to Washington and do service. so why is there so much criticism for for doing that? But you know very quickly we realized that that's just the game and and the way it is. And you know a lot of the people who are critical, they don't know us, they're they they don't um. Uh, they don't um, uh, know what we're doing or why we're doing it, and so you know you tend to just block it out pretty quickly. I, I do think it speaks, you know, volumes of of people though who are so filled with hatred and uh, and and uh, and poison that they go to such great lengths to be so critical and so cruel uh, to people. But uh, you know, look, one of the blessings, and I have many blessings in life, is that I feel hatred for 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 nobody, and so uh, you know, I want everyone to do well and. I think that that's something that you just have to push forward to. So, you know, again, you know, we all have to feel like we're we're pushing forward on things. And, you know, I always believe that at the end of the day, um, you know, we'll be judged not based on, you know, one story, what story was in the news one day, or, you know, what some random person or random celebrity says about you. We'll be judged by our accomplishments. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of personally is, you know, the whole country was, uh, was melting down after the, the 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 tragic death of George Floyd and I had a lot of you know liberal friends saying you know history is gonna judge one way or the other and You know I said to my team. I said look you know people will always remember this time and some people were out marching in Streets some people were we doing very bad things and looting and destroying neighborhoods Some people were sitting at home or virtue signaling on social media and doing videos crying about injustice I said, you know, we'll always remember that we were here you know, in the mines, working away, trying to find solutions. And that's what we did. I mean, we uh, we worked with uh, with law enforcement. We worked with uh, some families of uh, victims of police brutality. We brought people together at the White House. We worked on some policies and the president. Again, Congress did what Congress usually does, which is nothing. They, they you know, you had a bunch of people wear Kenta cloth and go and kneel in the Capitol. And, you know, it was probably virtue signaling to a degree that was maybe even embarrassing for politicians. But at the end of the day, they got nothing done and they couldn't do anything. Well, we got an executive order done that, uh, that, that focused on what are the problems. The problems were is that a lot of these uh, police departments didn't have you know, standards for training that were modernized. And we came up with a mechanism, not that we can nationalize law enforcement, where we could incentivize police departments to up, update and upgrade their standards based on uh, modern standards that were uh, created by law enforcement because, again, law enforcement wants to earn the trust of the community. And so uh, we're going to announce pretty soon that uh, we have thousands of of police departments throughout the country that are now adopting those standards. Whereas, you know, the previous administration, uh, they uh, held a commission and, and that commission, you know, I read the report and they said, you know, this is going to be the greatest day in law enforcement because uh, this isn't just a report that's going to sit on a shelf. This is something that's going to change things. Uh, and then we look back and out of like 18,000 police departments in the country, 15 implemented their recommendations, one five. And so at the end of the day, it's it's like Washington at its worst, where, you know, you have a problem. And the good thing is, is people here, you know, they they get distracted very easily. So people get focused on something and then it moves. But, you know, my team's tried to be focused on how do you actually, you know, not uh, give in to the hysteria? How do you keep calmness? How do you you know, keep a calm head and focus on what's the problem? What's a, an achievable solution? How do we bring the stakeholders to the table? Uh, and I think that's going to be emblematic of, you know, most of the 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 president's uh, tenure. You know, when, uh, when Bob Woodward, you know, called, he wanted to do the book, you know, he said, well, what do you think? He says, I want to do something different. I said, well, you can write, you know, the same book as everyone else, which is uh, what I would call like, you know, the, you know the drama of White House in and out. I said, but that's what I call the surface. I said, if you want to write a real book, you should actually take these are all the things that were accomplished, and then write back and say how were so many things that had been talked about in Washington for decades but not accomplished actually accomplished. And you know, obviously, he chose the more sensational path because that's what <laughs> sells books. Um, but the reality is, is that people should study this administration for its effectiveness because again, the president renegotiated the trade deals, did more deregulation. Um, I think in, in in the year before the president became uh, into office, six million man hours were spent in our economy complying with new regulations. And then for his first three years, each year was uh, a year where you had the first year uh, in particular was the first year ever that there had been a decrease in the cost of regulation. And then that came down. That unleashed American business. We're uh, energy independent for the first time as a country, thanks to what the president's done. Uh, to launch that. That means that uh, you know people's gas prices are lower, their home heating prices are lower, uh, and we don't have to be entangled in the Middle East in all of these 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 endless wars. Uh, I look at what my my wife did. We're focusing on getting STEM education grants available for all the public schools so that people could start learning uh, the language of the future uh, in in computer science and education, then all of the skills retraining programs that she's been doing to focus on. You know, the industries that are being you know disaggregated because of the industrial Revolution and the businesses that are being uh, created and figuring out how are we training Americans for the problems of tomorrow business people think about you know where things are going and how do you make sure they get there and how do you avoid problems and seize future opportunities uh, politicians wait till there's a big problem and then they figure out how can we blame each other for the problem and spend no time focusing on solutions so you know we've been able to implement a lot of policies that will, Really lead to America being stronger for many decades to come, and I do believe again that if the president's given four more years, uh, you'll see uh, uh, an increase in catalyzation of those efforts. Uh, where again, you know, I think that the goal that we've set through uh, through the teams that have been studying it is normally productivity drops off in a second term, but I do think you know in President Trump's second term he can be twice as effective uh, based on you know everything that 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 he's learned and and the quality of people that he's now surrounding himself with.
1: So final question for you, Jared Kushner. I'm going to ask, what does a second Trump term look like? What's on the agenda? But if you'd like to hear Jared Kushner's answers, you have to be a Daily Wire member. Head on over to dailywire.com. Click join at the top of the page. You can hear the rest of our conversation over there. Jared Kushner, really appreciate the time and good luck in the final weeks of the campaign.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Ben. Good to be with you.
1: The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Mathis Glover. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. And our assistant director is Pavel Wydowski. Associate producer, Nick Sheehan. Our guests are booked by Caitlin Maynard. Editing is by Jim Nichol. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. Title graphics are by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020.